The immigration crisis climbs back into the headlines. Andrew McCarthy looks into some troubling issues with the Justice Department's idea of a special counsel. A volcano may be responsible for record summer temperatures. And Ron DeSantis pushes back against an inaccurate real-time fact check from NBC's Dasha Burns. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Sorry, I was uh, about a minute late getting started today, but uh, the tray in the printer in the back room back here and my sophisticated operation here in my living room that extends back into the study, um, the tray in the printer had been pushed in, which means when I printed out all my stuff that I needed this morning for the show, just a minute, always like to hear the last crank it up, um, it had all dumped out on the floor. And, of course, when it dumps out on the floor, it goes up under the printer stand and sometimes in a box that's back there that I'm not sure has any purpose. Um, so our sophisticated operation here sometimes runs into some issues. <laughs> Good morning. If you're listening live, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us today on Truth and Politics and Culture with me, Dr. Tony Beam. I land at uh, North Greenville University. That's my landing point, my work point, my life investment point. I've been there almost 20 years, and I'm currently serving as Senior Director of Church and Community Engagement and Public Affairs for the university. I also work for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, doing the Office of Public Policy. And uh, right now, I am the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. So I wear a lot of different hats. Of course, I do the program um, by the way, program note, we're excited to have South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson on the show in the morning. He's going to join us at 8 o'clock, and he's going to talk about judicial reform in South Carolina, which is kind of a hot topic. We're still waiting to hear from the South Carolina Supreme Court as to whether or not they're going to declare that the latest iteration of the heartbeat bill is constitutional, um, and hopefully we'll hear something before the end of this month. Um, and most of us are hopeful that um, that that ruling is going to go in favor of protecting life in the womb. Uh, we had some changes in the makeup of the court. Uh, the one, the person who wrote the opinion um, that last time that said that the heartbeat bill was unconstitutional, it didn't meet South Carolina constitutional muster because of a woman's right to privacy in the South Carolina Constitution. Uh, which the United States Supreme Court says doesn't exist in the federal constitution, but uh, three of the five justices in South Carolina said it exists in the South Carolina constitution. Now, I've, I've been over that. I've talked about where it came from. Um, it's Article 1, Section 10, and it, it's. Uh, I'm not going to cover that ground again today because I've spent so much time on it before. But uh, let's just say that there's a new justice on the court, and we're hoping that that's going to make the difference, that this ruling will be 3-2 in favor of the heartbeat bill, and it'll become the law in South Carolina, and we can stop having the record number of children dying in the womb. You know, I was, I was um, 
involved in some of the Colson fellows' information yesterday going through it. And there was a quote, I can't remember if it was G.K. Chesterton or uh, was it, who else? It, it could, I don't remember exactly who it was, but they said, the quote is that we can consider ourselves um, as, as Christians uh, to have had a good generation if we just end up protecting our children and the elderly. In other words, if we can just not kill off our children and not allow the elderly uh, to suffer or to look at them and consider that they long, no longer have value, then we can say that our time on this planet, our section of history, has been traversed successfully. Well, <laughs> you know, especially here in South Carolina right now, we're not doing a very good job of protecting the children because the abortion rate continues to be through the roof as other states around us have restricted abortion and the number of abortions here are have remained high and will unless the heartbeat bill becomes a law. So we're we're hopeful about that. I'm not going to talk about the Ohio vote today. If you were thinking, oh, he's going to talk about that, I'm not. I'm going to wait and talk about that tomorrow. Uh, that vote, like a lot of these pro-life votes, uh, and th- and this is being cast as a pro-life or a loss for the pro-life community in Ohio, um, which it is. But it's not really, because this wasn't about whether or not the, any pro-life legislation was going to pass or, or that the people were going to sign off on. This was a constitutional question about what it takes to change the Ohio Constitution. And yes, it would have been better if that could have been raised to 60% for pro-life purposes, uh, because normally these referendums that make it to the state level are fairly close. But that doesn't mean that the pro-life community in Ohio will lose the vote in November, which actually Ohio is going to try to pass a law that would uh, change the Constitution and make um, abortion legal regardless of what the legislature does. They're going to change, if they change the Ohio Constitution, they can bypass the legislature, which has passed some pro-life restrictions. So uh, there's a lot in that story, and um, I just didn't have time when it came out yesterday to spend the time necessary that I, I felt like to, to do it justice, and so I'm going to take it up tomorrow if you want to hear some of that. And you'll also, like I said, want to tune in tomorrow because judicial reform is, we're going to pursue that in South Carolina, and I appreciate our Attorney General, Alan Wilson, being willing to speak out the way that he he is on it, uh, because we we definitely need to change the way that Supreme Court justices are put on the Supreme Court in South Carolina. Uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time tomorrow setting that up, uh, but we also need some other changes in our laws that affect the judiciary to have a more effective third branch of government here in in South Carolina. All right, let's do our border update. A group of unarmed gunmen were seen crossing the southern border over the weekend. Uh, they appeared to go back across the border before they caused any trouble, or um, and of course, before they were arrested. Uh, they were seen in Fonton, Texas. Uh, that's an area in Texas that's known for cartel activity. Now, cartel activity is happening all up and down the border, so I don't want to leave you with the idea that there's one section in Texas. It just happens that this section in Texas was where the focus was. 
um, over the weekend. All three of the men were carrying long guns. One of them appeared to be wearing body armor. This was surveillance footage that we have of them. And the Border Patrol dispatched a BORTEC unit, which is like their SWAT team, um, and, and they went to intercept the men. But by the time, of course, that they got there, they were nowhere to be found, and they searched the area and couldn't come up with anything. Uh, the government are believed to be cartel members. Uh, if you go back to May, uh, Border Patrol and Texas authorities arrested five members suspected of being members of the cartel de Noresta, they were armed with rifles, and they were also escorting several miners, which is one of the ways that the cartel funds its operations. It's human trafficking as well as drug trafficking. They're involved in both. And some are suggesting that the cartels are pretty much controlling the border right now. Now, I, I think that's an overstatement. Um, it, we tend to get emotional about the border, and when we do, we make blanket statements uh, we have a problem with a cartel and the way that they are operating near the southern border. There's no question about it. Uh, they've been taunting Border Patrol agents across the border. They come across. They go back across. We, uh, we, we're unable to uh, track them down. We can't get there fast enough usually to arrest them. And oftentimes they're found in the in accompanying minors, which is it, it just – I mean, it's bad all the way around, no matter how you look at it. Uh, they are successfully getting getting fentanyl into the United States. We know that because we have a fentanyl crisis. Um, cartel members near the city of Matamoros blocked roads near U.S. checkpoints leading into Brownsville, Texas, earlier this year. Uh, they've also been reports of cartel members, um, as we said, taunting Border Patrol agents and they often are exploiting immigrants who want to come to the United States. I mean, they make money off of this. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think they're in control, but they're getting out of control. I mean, we're beginning to see an increase in their activity that needs to be addressed. The Washington Examiner actually published a report saying that the cartels have begun exploiting the CBP-1 app by getting around its geofencing. Now, the CBP app, in case you, CBP1, if you haven't been paying attention, you know, <laughs> the Biden administration's answer to illegal immigration is to give people an app they can download on their smartphone that'll allow them to make appointments uh, d directly to get interviews to get into the country. And of course, the Biden administration says the goal is to reduce the potential for smugglers and others to um, exploit migrants. But basically what's happening is it's just giving immigrants a smartphone op, uh, application to be able to get into the country easier. This is not closing the border. You know, when, when we hear the uh, you know Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas talk about a secure border, you, you have to bear in mind that he's talking about an environment where migrants that want to come here illegally, there's an app for that. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, there's an app for everything now. Why don't we just go ahead and, and make an app for Chinese to, to the Chinese to be able to break into national security? Why don't we just go ahead and make an app that makes it easier for smugglers to do what they do or uh, make an app that makes it easy for human traffickers, which actually 
is what's happening here because what the Washington Examiner discovered is that these traffickers, whether they're trafficking in human trafficking or in, in, in terms of exploiting minors or they're drug trafficking, they've been able to somehow get into these apps and that they can redirect, they can bypass the restrictions, giving human tracker, track, uh, traffickers direct access to human pathways into the country. And by doing that, they control the messaging of the app, using it to assist them in their human trafficking and in their drug trafficking and in their illegal immigrant trafficking. Um, and, and so there have been multiple reports that the cartel now has the ability to do this, which, you know, it's, it's nice when you've got an app for that. And it turns out that the app is not only being used by people that are trying to get into the country, but it's being used by the cartels who are now redirecting them, and it's aiding them in their human trafficking efforts. Uh, Homeland Security, as said, the Homeland Security Committee in Congress has launched an, an investigation into the app to see if these stories can be confirmed that are coming from the Washington Examiner. Uh, okay, let's move away here for just a second from the southern border and talk about some stuff that's going on on the northern border. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey uh, declared a state of emergency over the impact of illegal immigration is having on her state. Her shelters are now officially overrun, and this con concerns not the southern border, but the northern border, the Swan sector that covers parts of New Hampshire, New York, and Vermont. Uh, it's a section of the border between the U.S. and Canada, of course. And in the past 10 months, now think about the size of the increase that I'm about to note here. In the past 10 months, crossings, more crossings have been reported than in the last nine years combined. And so Massachusetts has set up these homeless shelters um, it, or, it for migrants, and they'll only house about 20,000 people, and most of them are in Boston. And so now the governor is asking for federal aid. They, she sent a message to federal uh, administrators asking to expand for money to expand the shelter system to avoid its collapse. So this is the problem a problem with the northern border in near Massachusetts in Massachusetts where people are crossing now in record numbers. Meanwhile, in New York, Mayor Eric Adams is under fire for taking over Randall Island soccer fields where hundreds of children and adults play in soccer leagues. So you talk about a a saga here. I mean, Eric Adams is New York, of course, a sanctuary city. They've said, please, you know, we, we, we're going to provide everything, all the needs for immigrants coming into the country until they actually have to. I mean, no one thought when all this talk about sanctuary cities was going on that any city was going to have to actually step up to the plate and take care of immigrants as they were coming into the country. They were far removed from the southern border. And that was a southern border problem. That was a southern states, uh, western southern state problem. Um, but now that problem's exacerbated because migrants are being moved all over the country. And not just by these governors. The Biden administration is moving some of them. Um, uh, and yes, the governor of Texas, governor of Florida, uh, others 
are sending migrants, asking them where they want to go. There have been news stories that suggest that they're being forced to go to these cities, but the fact is that they're being asked where they want to go. They're being told that they can't stay because of the capacity, obviously, of the southern states and the high-impact immigration states. They, they've been beyond their capacity for a long time. And so they've been spreading the problem out across the country because the country, for one thing, needs to understand that this is a national crisis, that this isn't just something that's happening with farmers in Texas or, her, or ranch owners in Texas or border communities. This is something that's affecting every city um, or at least a multitude of cities in the United States. So uh, Adams is, has been trying to figure out what to do with this, and one of the things that they did is that the Roosevelt Hotel, which is a historic hotel in New York, has been used to house immigrants, but they've run out of space there. So over the weekend, you started to see side by side for several blocks, immigrants sleeping on the sidewalk out near the Roosevelt Hotel. So something's got to be done. I mean, they've got to come up with some kind of, um, of plan. But this Randall, um, the Randall Island Park system is home to children's soccer leagues, adult soccer leagues. The fields, hundreds of thousands of dollars has been poured into this facility to upgrade the fields where the, uh, these leagues can take place to make them really nice facilities. Um, and in a, in a letter sent to Mayor Adams from Randall Islands Park Alliance co-chairs Jonathan May and Nancy, Nancy Neft, the pair informed the mayor that well over 3,000 hours of recreational time would be lost to taxpayers if large areas of the park are transformed into migrant camps. They're talking about taking four sections. I mean, this is a, this is a massive park system. But So they're not talking about using the whole thing, but think about it. If you set up migrant camps in four sections of this park, um, how many people are going to be willing to come and use the fields that are, right, that are adjacent to where all these migrants have, are being housed temporarily? I mean, it's, it's, it's going to cut way down even on the fields that are left to be used there's a lot of people not going to be willing. Now, maybe they should be willing. I'm not saying that this is a situation where people should try to stay away from the migrants that, that because automatically they're, they're going to be dangerous. I think that's a bad way to talk about it. We're, we're, again, we're talking about people made in the image of God, and they're trying to do something to take care of them. But because it, we have to keep backing up the stages to be able to understand why this is even a problem because the Biden administration has refused to deal with a border crisis and just simply keep saying over and over and over again, the border is closed, the border is closed, the border is secure, They're, they continue to move migrants around the country, along with these governors of border states, so that the rest of the country can see that what the Biden administration is saying is not true, that we do have a serious problem, we do have a porous border, and and in many cities, New York being one of them, they're having to use a lot of resources that normally would be used by taxpayers in order to set up temporary camps. Uh, many residents were upset about the move. They're talking about the 3,000 hours of, at least, 
of adult and children soccer leagues and different sports leagues that are not going to be able to to they're not going to be able to have them um, because because this space is being is going to be repurposed. There already you know, there are pictures with these big trucks um, sitting there and tents are beginning to be put up larger tents to be able to house the migrants. And a lot of residents are they're they're upset about this. I mean, ironically, the city already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up shelters on the island on Randall Island in the parking lot of the parks in October, and they were criticized uh, because they were offering amenities in these shelters like uh, flat screen TVs, Xbox consoles, uh, popcorn machines, all kinds of things. That and and believe me, look I. I don't know what the answer to this problem is other than it, it, it needs to be the answer is to have a, a, a sensible immigration system with a border that is secure, and we do not have either. And so without either, we're going to continue to have these problems. And I'm not saying that migrants need to be in squalor or that they don't deserve to have some kind of amenities. But some of this was a little bit over the top when you think about the fact that it's being paid for by taxpayers and paid for by taxpayers that are not only spending the money, um, their tax money being used for this, that they're also losing access to taxpayer services that they've come to depend on with the recreational fields. Uh, the shelters were in the parking lots, but they were shut down in October. They were built to hold about 500 migrants but they were shut down because they weren't being used. And so, so what, is the, what does the city of New York do? Well, they go, they go back, they, they find another location where they begin to build and decide we're going to build a migrant shelter. That location floods. Basically, they, they had flooding in the area and had to shut that down, and now they've moved back to Randall Island. And this time, they're not using the parking lot, they're using the actual fields, and they're talking about housing around 2,000 migrants, which is four times the number that they thought they were going to be housing in the parking lot. Now, here I am in South Carolina. Why am I talking about this? Because this is, an, this is highlighting the fact that there is no border plan, that the administration is allowing this chaos to take place across the country. It's bad for the migrants. It's, it puts pressure on them. I mean, can you imagine sleeping on the sidewalk, side by side, lined up for blocks because there's no room for them in New York, and they're, now they're having to take over soccer fields to provide room? That's not a good scenario. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, if you've got an emergency, obviously housing people, again, created in the image of God, taking care of their needs and, and, until this problem can be fixed is something that we have a responsibility to do. And I know a lot of people don't agree with that. They think, ah, just pack them up, load them up, send them back to Mexico, send them back to Honduras, send them back. Look, we're talking about people. We're not talking about cattle. We're not talking about herding animals into some type of a car and sending them somewhere. We're talking about human beings. And we have a responsibility to people created in the image of God to take to meet their basic needs to take care of them in some way until this crisis this this disaster by the Biden administration can be addressed at the southern border and when we talk about the southern border by the way 
overall numbers of illegal encounters are heading back up. The Biden administration has been bragging that since Title 42, you know, you had this massive surge of over 200,000 in one month. They set a record going into Title 42, and then that number dropped down to about 144,000. Well, according to the New York Post, that number increased in July. It was down to 144,000 in June, but it was up 30% in July. So now we're back up close to the 200,000 number again, and a lot of the crossings are simply shifting their location. They're going from Texas to Arizona. Arizona's seeing a, a spike in crossings because Texas is putting up these buoys and razor wire, and people are going crazy going after Governor Abbott saying that, that Texas is being cruel, and all Texas is doing is trying to protect its southern border. I mean, they have a responsibility. The state of Texas has a constitutional responsibility to its own citizens that live near the border to protect them from the surge that's coming across. And, and it until the Biden administration can get their act together, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, but until that happens, then I certainly support the state of Texas in trying to figure this out. All right, um, let's move on and talk about DeSantis here for just a minute uh, because they, they, he had an interesting back and forth um, with uh, Dasha Burns at NBC and the, when the conversation turned to abortion, uh, she decided to do a fact check right there on the spot during the interview with NBC, with, with her with it, on NBC, what, to take uh, DeSantis to task because he basically said, look, Democrats, progressives, they want to have abortion right up until the moment of birth. No limits. And Dasha Burns said, well, now, wait a minute, I've got to push back on that. I want you to hear... Um, this interview, a good section of it, rather than just playing the part where Dasha decides what NBC did for a long time. They played Dasha pushing back against what DeSantis said, and they didn't play DeSantis' full response. So we're going to do that for you because I think that's the way that's supposed to work. Here we go. Another issue that's been talked about a lot on the campaign trail, on the campaign trail by both Democrats and Republicans, abortion. Now, when it comes to your position on abortion and where you stand on any sort of national ban, you've been asked about this a lot, and I've read through a lot of your answers, listened to your interviews, and I just want to clarify, in this post-Jobs era, do you believe that abortion is an issue that should just be dealt with on a state-by-state basis? So uh, I'm pro-life. I have a record of being uh, promoting a culture of life in Florida, just like they've done in Iowa, just like they've done in South Carolina. Dobbs returned it to the political branches. I think the reality is that that basically means the states are going to have primary control over it. You know, I do think the federal government would have an interest in, say, preventing post-birth abortions or things that are that are really horrific. But I don't think that there's enough consensus in the country uh, to see a lot of, of, of mileage in Congress. So I think what I've said is, you know, if you want to protect life, it's a bottom-up movement. And so let's work with states that have done it, work in your local communities. Um, but you also have to understand, you know, what Iowa's done is not what New Hampshire is going to do. And what Wisconsin will do is not what Texas is going to do. So would you veto any sort of federal bill that tries to put a nationwide ban in place? So we will be a pro-life president, and, and we will support pro-life policies. Um, I would not allow uh, what a lot of the left wants to do, which is to override 
pro-life protections throughout the country, all the way up really until the moment of birth in some instances, which I think is, is infanticide. Uh, well, actually, not- I got to push back on you on that because that that's a, a misrepresentation of, of what's happening. I mean, that... Okay, I'm stopping the interview here for a second because this is where NBC, for a, a long time after this aired, they were they were playing a clip of of Dasha Burns talking about this with DeSantis, and this is where they stopped it. They stopped it with her pushing back. So I want you to hear a little bit of DeSantis' response. One point three percent of abortions happen at twenty one weeks or higher. There's no, no right. evidence of Democrats pushing for but, but abortions up is, until their view is is that all the way up into that. Yet there should not be any legal protections. Uh, there is no in indication of Democrats right, pushing you're, you're for right. that. Well, yes, they are. They've done it in California. They've done it in other states. They have uh, not instituted some, that policy. Yeah, they have. Yeah, they have. Uh, they basically will say that, you know, if there's some type of like it, it, it they'll use like different ways to really have, uh, it's, have a it's wide It's extremely rare. 1.3%. And in those circumstances, they're typically extremely emotional decisions. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 I don't say that that's the norm in terms <laughs> of this, but I do think that the left in this country has moved on from a position that said, you know what, we do want to discourage abortion, it's not something that's a good thing, to now viewing it more as a positive good for society. Yes, that's absolutely correct. DeSantis is right about this, and the DeSantis campaign, thankfully, put out a montage later of Democrats who were saying exactly what DeSantis says is the Democrat Party way on this. And here's the montage. Do you support any restrictions on abortion? I don't. I've always Even believed... Even in the third trimester? I, 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 do you think there should be any limitation on abortions? Uh, no, I do not. Where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, of, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? My bill would allow that, yes. Do you believe that a woman should be able to terminate a pregnancy up until the moment of birth? Look, I think that that happens very, very rarely. But at the end of the day, I believe that the decision over abortion belongs to a woman and a physician. My question was about any limits to abortion at any point, you know, late term, anything. You you, got to leave it up to the to the woman. Up till now, my understanding is there wasn't a limit on when. In a pregnancy, a woman could receive an abortion. Have you set any limit? There are no limits. Okay, that's pretty clear. Here, these are various prominent Democrats. You probably recognize Bernie Sanders' uh, voice in there. Uh, I think uh, Democrat Tim Ryan was in there at some point. Um, several other leading Democrats ask in interviews, "Do you support any limits? Would you set any limits?" And all of them said no. And yes. Um, Several states have put in severe abortion laws that allow abortion all the way up until almost the moment of birth. Um, And Dasha Burns can say all she wants to, that that's a low number, that's only 1.3, but we're talking about babies that are, and as you heard in in this interview, it's being pushed that babies that are almost ready to come into, into the birth canal that Democrats are pushing the idea, progressives are pushing the idea that it would be okay to have an abortion at that point. And I, look, I'm glad DeSantis is doing this. I think he, he needs to be out on the campaign trail. He needs to be more vocal. He needs to be taking on more uh, aggressive interviewers because I think he does well 
Um, he, he doesn't have to be vulgar. He doesn't have to be profane in pushing back against some of these interviewers. He just simply has the facts at his fingertips, he, and, and at least, and he's got a staff that's willing to immediately respond to this, a quick response staff, to be able to demonstrate that the things that he's saying are true, even though he's being challenged by Dasha Burns. Uh, and of course, you know, I, I feel bad for Dasha for one reason, okay? Um, she was the reporter who actually dared question whether Fetterman was having some issues with the stroke that he had had and whether he was really being, would he really be fit to serve in the Senate? And she's been trying to make amends for that ever since. I mean, when when you actually, if if you're a progressive and you work for a progressive network and you actually say something that is true or you call into question any progressive narrative or policy, then you're going to have to do penance. And I suppose um, she's finished with her penance because she's back out doing interviews. But she, I'm glad that that DeSantis pushed back on that, and I'm glad that DeSantis' team was able to get some information out quickly. All right, um, you've heard a lot about uh, global warming this summer because we are having a record heat wave. Now, a record, it, it, this term record heat wave um, is, it can sometimes be misleading. Um, but it, as we look at temperatures globally, we look at temperatures around the world and in specific places here in the United States, there's no question that we've been having, it's been a hot summer. And immediately, those who would I would say are climate alarmist uh, have been insisting that it, all of a sudden, global warming has kicked in, climate change has, has come to its apex, that this, these record temperatures this summer are the culmination of years of us putting uh, carbon, uh, you know, the uh, fluorocarbons into the atmosphere, uh, cow flatulence, uh, whatever uh, that, that you want to call it. We, we've, been, we've been doing this long enough now that we're at a critical point, and everything is going to fall apart if we don't do something immediately about global warming. And doing something immediately means getting rid of your, rid of your gas stove. It means getting rid of your gas water heater. It means you making sacrifices that in the course of things is not going to make that much difference if, for example, China and India and other nations besides the United States don't modify what they're doing. I mean, the, 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 the things that the Biden administration is doing right now is, is not going to change the trajectory of climate change if we are responsible for uh, the rise in temperatures, and that's still being debated among science. It's not settled science unless you happen to be a progressive. Now, Matt Walsh yesterday talked about a story that came out actually from scientists at NASA, um, and they're talking about a volcano that erupted, I think it was last year, um, that put millions, I think it was billions of tons of moisture into the atmosphere that scientists say now likely is is one of the causes at least for our record high temperatures. Um, so and 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 this is coming from scientists and climate experts 
are saying that the carbon emissions, you know, again, are responsible for some of what we see in global warming, but that it's actually a volcano that has put a lot of the moisture into the atmosphere that could be affecting our temperatures for a long time. I mean, it, it's, it's not, this is not some kind of temporary thing. Um, an underwater vo- volcano erupted in Tonga, and it was so big that you could see it from space. I mean, that's how big the actual eruption was. And the entire west coast of the United States at the time was put under a tsunami warning. And according to NASA, that wrote up a detailed analysis of the event last August, said the eruption caused a sonic boom that circled the globe twice. It also blasted an enormous plume of water vapor into the Earth's stratosphere. Now, that's important to understand. We're, we're talking about water vapor, which obviously you water is something that once it gets in, uh, into the atmosphere is easily heated and can cause problems with the Earth's temperature. It was enough. How much are we talking about here? Well, it was enough to fill 58,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. That's the way NASA described it. Um, And that's significant because NASA went on to say that volcanic eruptions normally cool the planet because they emit a lot of dust particles that reflect sunlight away from the planet. Um, In fact, there are theories that say that that's what happened to the dinosaurs, that, um, you know, if you're... If you're an evolutionist, uh, if you're a naturalist, and you believe that the Earth is billions and billions of years old, then you you go back and you say, well, the dinosaurs about 40 to 60 million years ago, they went extinct uh, because there was a asteroid or a, a comet or an, an asteroid that hit the planet, a meteorite that hit the planet. Um, it, it threw up enough dust into the atmosphere that the, the planet cooled to the point that it killed off the vegetation so that the animals, the dinosaurs that ate, the words, the veggiesauruses, uh, according to Jurassic Park, the veggiesauruses died first because the plants died, and then the larger carnivores died because they didn't have the smaller animals to eat. So th- this is, and, and and so the idea. There's, I actually saw a story where the some scientists were questioning: Is vol- are volcanoes going to save us from global warming or from climate change? Because could we use them? In other words, could we cause volcanic eruptions to put enough ash into the atmosphere to cut down on the amount of sunlight that would affect the or, or that would cool the earth? In other words, that would that would do it by blocking some of the sunlight. But water vapor is another story. Uh, dust particles reflect sunlight away. Water vapor actually, traps heat. So and it's the it, in in fact scientists admit that it's the single most abundant greenhouse gas that exists in the atmosphere. It's responsible for half of the greenhouse gas effect on the planet. So here was a prediction from NASA. This is back in August of last last August, not this August, a year ago. This is what they wrote. The sheer amount of water vapor could be enough to temporarily affect Earth's global average temperature. Well, that seems like a pretty important detail. Doesn't, doesn't it seem that way to you? I mean, if, if, if we had this huge volcanic eruption, it puts billions of gallons, maybe trillions of gallons of water vapor into the atmosphere. And NASA 
and, and the scientists that, that track this stuff says, look, this is enough to affect global temperatures. This is going to cause a significant possibility of temperature change. So a volcano sends this massive amount of water. Scientists call it a once-in-a-lifetime event, which they say has clear ramifications for the climate, and they don't even talk about it in the mainstream or legacy media. I mean, they don't talk about it in ABC News. Um, and here we have progressives who say that their party, the Democrat Party, is the party of science. They're out blaming MAGA Republicans. I mean, you had uh, Hillary Clinton just recently blaming Republicans for loneliness blame and, and blaming Republicans for for global warming, that it's um, you know, it basically it's it's the fault of conservatives who are holding back the government from from being able to take the the proper steps to change climate change to address climate change in the world. Um, this, and 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 by the way, when NASA talked about this, they're not talking about a temporary spike as in a couple of months. Here, they're talking to, according to NASA, excess water vapor injected by the Tonga volcano could remain in the stratosphere for several years. And by December of 2022, it appeared that NASA's prediction had been vindicated. Uh, this is coming from a Daily Wire story, by the way, today. Research published that month by the Meteorologist Research Institute, NASA, and the University of Chicago. So you've got three non-conservative groups here, groups of scientists that are looking at this, and they said that um, that they confirmed that the eruption last year increased the mass water vapor in the atmosphere by 13%, and that it would remain in the, in the stratosphere for years. And that's what NASA originally predicted. And then they added this, the unique nature and magnitude of the global stratospheric uh, perturbation by the Tonga eruption ranks it among the most remarkable climatic uh, of climatic events in the modern observation era. Now, seven months later, in July, the research meteorologist Ryan Mao had this response to the fallout from the eruption. Quote, based upon the latest few months, it seems the effect of the eruption on global temperatures may have been greatly underestimated. In fact, Ryan Mao was right. Just about two weeks ago, another paper came out on the eruption, this one from the researchers at Caltech's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The paper found that the eruption sent 40 trillion gallons of seawater into the stratosphere. This is where I get the trillions here. Uh, and what the researchers called an unprecedented water vapor injection. Dr. Robert Rode, the lead scientist in the independent nonprofit Berkeley Earth reviewed these recent findings. He concluded that as a powerful greenhouse gas, this water may have contributed to recent warming. Now, am I saying that climate change doesn't exist? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that there are natural processes happening on the Earth that are much more likely to affect any change in climate than there is that we humans are going to put enough stuff into the atmosphere that we're going to cause our own extinction. I mean, look, I, I think we should be responsible. In fact, God's Word calls us, in, in if you look at the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, we're called to 
rule over the earth, to subdue it, to plant, to build, to create. We're supposed to be the stewards. And so we don't need to be out just ignoring the environment. We should take good care of the environment. We should beware. Uh, if we can find clean sources of energy, we should use them. If we can find a way to stop mining, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to stop coal mining. I mean, I, there, it, it's dangerous. It's um, and, and right now it's necessary. But if we can find a way around it, then we should, because that's being a good steward of the earth. There are a lot of decisions that we could make that could maybe reduce whatever humans are contributing to climate change. But there's several things about climate change that we need to understand. We don't know for sure that we can reverse what's happening. We don't know for sure that the amount of climate, of, 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 of carbon, the carbons that are going into the atmosphere that um, are causing a problem, that we, we can even change that. I mean, we, we want to tell ourselves that we can we can. There's some scientific evidence that suggests we can, but this is for sure. If the United States is alone in this, we can't stop the process unless we can get China and India and all the other countries of the world to get on board with making massive economic changes to our structure uh, to be able to address the problem. Um, look, I I'm, I'm not someone, I don't want to be that guy that runs around and says climate change is a hoax. Uh, I think climate change is happening. I think we can see that it's happening. I think the question uh, is whether there's anything we can do about it. I don't think that that's settled science. And I certainly don't think that the world is going to come crashing down every five minutes. I mean, you, because of climate change, you've got people now who are going to counselors just and counseling counseling centers are being opened up to try to help people that are scared to death because of climate change. They they it, it's affecting their mental health, and they're having to go talk to psychiatrists and counselors because they've been convinced by all this information that's being flooded out there that you know, and the fact that it's hot this summer that. The, the earth is spiraling out of control and that there's nothing that we can do about it. People are making decisions to not have children because of this. And, and it's just, you know, we, we don't have a replacement population. We're, we're not having babies fast enough to replace the current population as it is. We're barely holding our own, just under. And, it, and, and so when, when you talk about people finding reasons to making what I think are bad decisions for the country, bad decisions for the planet based on climate, chair, uh, climate change fears, it, fear is never the right motivator. Fear is not what should motivate us to do something. We should see a problem and address it logically, look at the science honestly, and don't demagogue numbers and be honest about the fact that a lot of the climate models that have come out have been wrong. And so when we begin to make definitive statements about climate change and ignore things like the Tonga volcano that NASA um, and all these other, the University of Chicago and other inst uh, scientific institutions that have looked into this believe that the water vapor 
that was pushed into the atmosphere is causing a lot of the high temperatures. We need to know that. We need to consider that when we're talking about can anything be done with climate change and what can be done if, if there's something that can be done by humans. Um, anyway, I thought you needed to know that information. All right, uh, one final story today. I want to spend a few minutes talking about the special counsel. Um, if, if you want to know the inside, that is, of, of what's going on with all of the charges against President Trump and what the, what the likely outcomes are going to be, um, you, need to, you need to listen to McCarthy. I, I don't know anybody. Andrew McCarthy is the best at describing what's going on. Uh, in all of Trump's problems uh, that he's having legally. And one of the things that McCarthy's talking about today at National Review is that the special counsel that was appointed by um, Merrick Garland was not necessary. I mean, it, it, it really was not necessary because the person who is running the investigation is the person who was running the investigation before the special counsel was named. And, you know, the special counsel is just out there. Jack Smith's out there. I mean, he's over the investigation, but he's not the main one that's doing the investigation or running the day-to-day operations. The running of the day-to-day operations is being carried out by someone in the Justice Department who was already looking into this before Garland called for a special process, a special counsel. And this is Andrew McCarthy writing today in a piece from National Review called The Biden Justice Department's Ethical Glass House. Um, Garland did not appoint Smith because the special counsel rules called for it. He did it because he and President Biden knew that Trump was going to argue that the president was using the Justice Department as a partisan political weapon against the main competition in the 2024 presidential campaign. Garland thus appointed a lawyer from outside the government. Smith was a prosecutor at The Hague at the time to create the illusion that Biden and his Justice Department have nothing to do with the prosecution of Trump, even though Smith reports to Garland and the power he wields is, is Biden's. As, as it's playing out, the Mar-a-Lago pros, uh, prosecution shows, that a, that, that a, shows a fiction that the special counsel, uh, what a fiction the appointment actually is. The prosecutor who appears to be playing the lead role and who is pushing for an inquiry that could lead to the disqualification of Nada's lawyer is Jay Bratt. Now, you need to remember that name because Jay Bratt was, is only nominally working for Jack Smith. He's the top Biden Justice Department official, who, and, and he was working on the Trump case, on both the documents case and the January 6th case, before Jack Smith was appointed. And we're all supposed to accept the fiction that Garland brought in Smith from outside the government to run the case independently because of Biden's DOJ conflict and investigating Trump. In reality, Smith was brought in because he was a top official in the Obama-Biden Justice Department for years before his gig at The Hague, and the Mar-a-Lago case appears to be led day by day by Brett, the same Biden DOJ prosecutor 
who was running it before Garland laundered the case through Smith's special counsel appointment. This is all coming from Andrew McCarthy today at National Review. And this brings us to the second point. Even as Bratt is questioning the ethical propriety of Woodward's participation. Now, Woodward is one of the lawyers uh, for NADA, who's a co-defendant. He's been, uh, NADA's been indicted um, and, and, and along with President Trump in this documents case. And Woodward, Woodward is his lawyer. And Jack Smith is saying, well, Woodward might need to be disqualified because he's been a, an attorney to potential witnesses in the case. And, and there is a rule and there's a law, and it's a good one, that says that if, if you're an attorney, a defense attorney in a case, you, you need to recuse yourself if it's likely that you're going to have to encounter people that you have represented before that may be witnesses in the current case that's coming before the court. And so Woodward is in that position. But what's interesting is you've got, you've got Jack Smith making that request, and he is simply the front man for Jay Bratt, the person who's actually running the investigation for the Biden administration, for the Justice Department, the day-to-day -day stuff. And it, he was doing this before um, uh, Smith was ever part of the picture. Uh, Brad not only ran the investigation that Trump and his co-defendants are accused of obstructing, but he's also potentially an important witness in the case. Now, it, th this is where it really gets, in gets interesting. Not only was Brat already doing the investigation, but it was already known that it was likely that he could become a witness. Um, if you look at the New York Times report that was published shortly after the August 2022 mar lago search, the title, Trump Lawyer, told Justice Department that classified material had been returned. For these purposes, Brat was the Justice Department. So when the lawyer, when it says that Trump lawyer told the Justice Department, they told Brat. That is, he's the government lawyer who arranged and attended the June 3rd, 2022 Mar-a-Lago meeting at which Trump lawyers Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob presented a package of 38 documents marked classified, which they told Brat were the only such documents on the premises. And so do you get the picture? Do you, you understand? I mean, I know this is kind of complicated stuff, but do you see what I'm talking about here? Jack Smith was brought in as a special counsel so that there wouldn't be any um, question of impropriety. And yet Brat, who was running the investigation, is already a potential witness in the trial because he was present at the meeting where 38 documents were turned over and he's going to, you've already got Conkrin and Bab involved in this thing. How can they not involve Brat, who was the Justice Department official that was at the meeting? And this, I mean, you talk about the pot calling the kettle black. It, this is, it, it, as these judges begin to look deeper into this and they find out more of these discrepancies, more of these inconsistencies, um, I, I mean, the case may move forward. I don't know how far the judges are, are, are going to be willing to, to bend in order to keep this case moving forward for the Biden administration, but I think these, these things are significant. The fact that Brat was already there and the fact that he's already involved in the case. And they're worried about Woodward, Woodward being a lawyer for one of the co-defendants because they've defended some of the people that are going to come in and testify. Uh, Brat raised Woodward's conflict 
because it is against ethics rules for an attorney to represent a client in a case where a second client will be a witness against the first client. Yet it is also against ethic rules for an attorney who is a key witness in a case, who is an actor in the facts the jury will consider to participate as a lawyer in the case. In the case, If, as one might expect, the defense responds to Bratz drawing attention to Woodward's ethical dilemma by drawing attention to Bratz's own ethical dilemma, Bratt will surely counter that he's not an essential witness, that he, he was accompanied to the June 3rd meeting at Mar-a-Lago, meeting by, meeting by FBI agents, and he'll contend that he can test that, that the people that were with him can testify in his stead. But he was the lead person from the Justice Department who was at the meeting. Don't you think Trump's lawyers are going to say that the person who was most responsible should be the person testifying? I mean, this thing, I, I mean, it just gets, as Andy Griffiths would say, curiouser and curiouser as, as it moves forward. The charges shouldn't have been brought. Um, the special prosecutor shouldn't, or special counsel rather, shouldn't have been brought in because all they're doing is putting Jack Smith out front while the person that was running the investigation all along that is likely going to be called as a witness by Trump's lawyers, that person is still running the show. And that just doesn't make any legal sense. And we'll see if the judges in this case, as it moves forward, um, how they treat it as all this information begins to come out. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. I hope you've had um, a, a good uh, experience today listening to the program. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us again tomorrow. Don't forget, like I said, we're going to have a special guest on tomorrow. South Carolina Attorney General Alan Wilson will join us to talk about an important topic in South Carolina, judicial reform. That's going to be 7.30 to 8.30, just like every morning. You can listen live by going to drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com and clicking on the Listen Live button. Or you can go to Facebook or YouTube and watch me live every morning, 7 to 30 to 8.30. And then later, the podcast is available from wherever you can get a podcast. Please leave my show a good review if you like it. Bye.